This show is sponsored by FIS. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Welcome to Breaking Banks. This is going to be an absolute epic show. We have like the all-star lineup. It 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 is insanely good. The guests we've got on today, um, and we're going to start off with uh, three uh, g- good friends. Or everyone that's on the show is is friends of the show and and friends of of us as hosts personally. Um, but uh, you know, let me hand off to uh, Jason, who's going to take the first segment. We've got three segments. This is a, a special extended mix for our first show of twenty. 23 and we're going to hear some big predictions and hear from some even bigger names so jason over to you bro liz dave henry happy new year hope you guys had a great holiday and i know that you spent all of your time over the holiday thinking about what is next for the financial service industry and i think you know, we went out <laughs> with a bang in 2022 yeah, I know, me too. And explaining to all of our relatives what the heck just happened to the crypto environment. So why don't we kick <laughs> off with, you know, that was the, the news story with FTX and SDF, you know, to end the year. What is next for crypto in 2023? Are, are we headed down? Will there be a recovery, a reinvention? You, know, Henry, why don't we start with you? Absolutely. I think for an epic show, definitely 2022, especially the latter part, was epic, unfortunately, for a lot of the wrong reasons. Uh, but of course, there's never a dull moment in crypto. I think like many of you, uh, we've been listening to a lot of my content. Uh, I, I always say that whoever tells you they're an expert in crypto, you got to run away because it's very difficult to know what's going <laughs> to happen even a month from now. Uh, but a lot of big developments to watch. I think uh, what I'm watching right now, let's say now we're in January for the weeks and months to come, there's some obvious things, right? For example, increased regulations. I think there was already a lot of momentum there. According to Cambridge University, only 5% of regulators do not have a team working on crypto. One of the things that I'm watching is, are we going to have regulators have more specialized teams? A very good example is what's been happening in Dubai that has set up the world's first crypto specialized regulator. And the rationale there for a new industry that is so disruptive, are we going to have regulators that are really kind of specialized on it? So these are some of the, one of the things that I'm expecting to watch. Some of the more on that, say, on the... Um, Decentralized uh, world, I really expect to see uh, DeFi become more mainstream. Uh, I think what, what we saw with FTX is actually some of the flaws with centralized models. The big question now is, is this a justification now to have even the institutional players experiment more with decentralized platforms? Really, uh, week, uh, November of 2022, we saw even the central bank, the MAS, launch a pilot with DBS, uh, with JP Morgan and SBI, where for the first time we had government bonds and actually FX transactions uh, being uh, transacted using DeFi protocols on layer two. 
So I think this is going to be very exciting to see if we get a bit more developments on that side. Uh, but I know that there's a other whole range of, uh, let's say, trends that I expect to see over the next weeks to come. And kind of a catalyzed again by FTX, you know, not only a trend towards more self-custody, especially from the OG community, but on the other hand of the on the other end of the spectrum, kind of a, a separation between the leading players and the rest of the pack. For example, all the players that have spent the time to be regulated, have proper counterparties, have proper internal governance controls, will not only benefit from it, and now we've seen really as of December already, November, December, their volumes increase, but I think we're going to see that pack at the top really dominate for one very simple reason. Not only the first, there's a trust of consumers, but also it's going to be very difficult now for new crypto players to build these relationships, for example, with the big four. Today, if you're a crypto company, you're going to try to get client acceptance, go through client acceptance or risk acceptance with one of the big four firms or one of the big law firms, it's going to be very difficult. So those who actually went and got the lead are going to benefit from that perspective. So a lot of things to watch. Uh, and maybe one other big trend that I'm watching as well, it's really what's going to happen with central bank digital currencies. In 2022, especially the first six months or nine months, they were not as sexy as they were before. Uh, but we saw obviously countries like the Bahamas, Nigeria, and of course, China move ahead. And now with China opening up, this may be kind of the, the coming out party of the CBDC and the ECNY and see what could be the impact there. And maybe not only in China, but potentially uh, outside as well. So a lot of exciting things to watch, despite the, the bad ending we had in 2022 in the crypto space. Liz, what's your hot take? Anything you want to build oh, on oh, but, what Henry said? Go for it. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I am, uh, I am uh, coming before Dave here, so he's just going to have to, he's just going to have to sit tight, um, so he can, he can talk about crypto. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I sat down recently with um, Richard Brown of R R three, and he's going to be in um, the Bankers January um, issue, and he talked about that crypto and blockchain in that world and uh, decentralized finance is now ent entering an era where people are having critical thinking and they're they're actually looking at experiments and and I kind of look at that as a, a maturing of the industry which I think is a, is a good thing I mean crypto has always kind of suffered from this weird hype entourage of uh, there are a few, you know, very smart people, very interesting people playing around with currencies and with chains and and then a, a whole group of people that you just wouldn't want to live next door to. And so I think kind of with with big sort of soap operas like FTX, I don't think it's a bad thing that bad players are being washed away so that we can look at enterprise blockchain. We can look at, we're having, you know, interoperability between different chains. I think HSBC and Wells Fargo recently did an experiment on that and sort of really looking how it can um, create innovation in the industry and not just make a few crypto bros rich, which is never a, a good goal, I think, for any any sort of technology or, or innovation. So. That wasn't the outcome we were looking for is a couple of crypto bros get exceedingly rich and are able to do massive embezzlement <laughs> of a scale never seen before. Yeah, no, no, I, I don't think anyone would. I don't think I don't think that that's a goal that makes the industry society in the world a better place. <laughs> I want to see I want to see, you know, I want to see, uh, you know, but payments that are frictionless. I want to see a, a trust network that that actually works in a decentralized way. Um, you know, the, these are things that make the industry better, not a few people that can buy Lamborghinis. Well, speaking of this idea of trust, Dave, as we turn to you, 
2023 actually the year we begin to see identity come of age and you know, this idea that you know building on what Henry said around decentralization and DeFi you know had some real potential there. What's up for identity in the coming year? Well, I think um, I think it's becoming clearer. I mean, I think that it, it it was clear to people in the sector that without some sort of activity on the digital identity front, we were going to run into problems. I think that's now clearer to to everybody in a much wider scale. And actually, not just because of massive fraud in the crypto space, but actually also because of massive fraud in the pandemic space. The fallout from the fraud that went on through because, you know, the pandemic loans and pandemic support has also kind of highlighted this issue in the mainstream. So so I think it isn't just because of crypto it's going to happen, but obviously it's going to help in the crypto space. Um, although you do have to say, you know, it depends. <laughs> and I hate to be annoying about this sort of thing, but it, it depends what you mean by crypto, because if you mean cryptocurrency, Liz's criticism is spot on. In fact, JP Morgan put out a very, very detailed demographic analysis of crypto holdings last week, which showed conclusively that basically people who were poor and less well-educated bought crypto at a much higher price. The distribution of gains has gone predominantly to basically rich old men, um, and it's younger people that have lost out. And actually, I I would say, actually, the extent to which crypto was projected into minority and excluded communities as a sort mm. of viable financial strategy was absolutely outrageous. And I think we we haven't seen the end of that yet. We haven't even seen the start of the lawsuits that are going to come from people who were persuaded mm. to put crypto into their 401ks and stuff like that. So cryptocurrency, but if you buy crypto, you mean you know tokens and DeFi. I'm much more bullish. And I agree with what David Solomon said the other day, the guy that runs Goldman Sachs, he knows about banking and stuff. And he said, Well, look, you know, we're going to use these technologies to construct a more transparent financial sector, which and I agree with that sentiment very strongly. In fact, actually, Richard Brown and and I co-authored a paper a few years ago, actually, about, about the use of the new technology to provide transparency. We called it ambient accountability. You know, the idea that you could construct these environments where trades could take place, where, where you didn't have to have auditors and people coming in expecting it and so on. And and, and Solomon made the same point. So so I'm I'm much more bullish on the sort of tokens and stuff. To the point about to the point directly about identity, I, I, I'm not sure I'm in favour. I don't know what Henry thinks about this, but I, the idea that we should have special regulation about crypto, I'm, I, I'm not sure. Um, I mean, you know, people like people like um, Sam um, Sam Bankman fraud, um, you know, should be aggressively prosecuted under existing fraud laws. You don't you don't need special laws uh, for this sort of thing. That's not obvious at all. Um, so, so I don't, I don't know about good to have a that CFO kind of for your company, apparently. Yeah, I mean, you know, there are rules about that, but there are the crypto has a particular problem because it hasn't got any digital identity embedded in it. So you can't do things you would never be allowed to do in real banks like related party transactions. You, you can't. It's impossible to spot because because in crypto you don't know who anybody is. So if you have a proper digital identity infrastructure in place then it's not clear to me that you need special extra regulations so you 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 take this kind of solomon point of view which is you have more transparency you have real digital identity in place 
I, I, I have a feeling that gets us most of where we want to go. I don't know we need special no, I mean, crypto. No, I, I, I actually, no, but I, I, I agree with Dave. I mean, especially specifically about FTX. Like there, that issue was not because it was a crypto exchange, but because he was he was taking customer money and buying real estate and moving it into another company. And that that's that's just fraud. That's mm. the, the existing regulations should, co- should, should cover that. Yeah. Hey, I want to just um, talk about a trend that is only just sort of emerged at the end of the year, Jason. I hope you don't mind me jumping in here, but, you know, at the end of uh, 2023, which was uh, essentially um, the fact that we hear a lot more talk about um, the division between wholesale CBDC and retail CBDCs. And it it appears that a consensus is emerging that... um, the, the action from a cross-border perspective, especially, you know, for if you look at the Chinese example and so forth, there's going to be a lot more focused on whole, wholesale CBDCs. Is, is that your observation too, Henry? Uh, yes and no. I think uh, there's obviously, when we look at wholesale CBDC, the progress that has been made in the past year is actually quite expensive quite impressive. And I would say that actually uh, impressed many people in the community to see how much progress has been done. Just one example is what's been happening with Project Enbridge, uh, with not only now is Hong Kong, Thailand, the mainland China, the UAE, but has about a, the 10 or other or so uh, central banks or an observer capacity. And where it's actually been quite impressive what they've come up with. Now, I think that we, we, we should look at that not only in a crypto or fintech perspective, but a broader geopolitical context as well. Uh, obviously, the big debate there, one of the things I'm watching right now, on a wholesale CBDC side, especially with projects like these, is what's going to be the reaction on the U.S. side and whether this could even become a national security risk from that perspective because it actually makes a lot of these kind of wholesale transactions between central banks definitely not more effective and more efficient. There's obviously a whole case of how, how the liquidity is going to come up with and other, other topics, but I think it's a very impressive development. However, I would say that, uh, uh, Brett, on that perspective, again, the impact that retail CBDCs will have on everyday life is significantly more than the impact that wholesale CBDC could have, especially when we think about elements like programmability of money, combating money laundering, being able to have a policymaking and a snapshot of the exact economy at all times. I think some of these developments that we're having, even though it's moving slower, if you look at what's been happening in Nigeria or or Bahamas or even China, the impact is still going to be greater. So I would say, again, what to watch in 2023. Wholesale is very interesting with some of these projects, but I still have my eyes on what's happening on the retail side because of its potential impact on not only crypto, but also the future of finance. Although I, I want to tease that out, and Liz, I'm going to take this over to you. When we talk about you know what we'll call the retail piece of crypto, the impact that Henry outlined you know, are largely kind of back office things rather than kind of the active trading. Do you think kind of this retail, the crypto bro mentality of, you know, the new kind of asset class to be trading, is that going to fade into the background or is, are we going to see a resurgence there? Uh, I'm I'm hoping it fades into the background. I mean, I've just, just, you know, what, what Dave Birch was talking about earlier with the, you know, any casino needs dumb money. And we saw before the winter happened, there was this real marketing push to get dumb money put into the system to create li- liquidity. And that that's, that's awful. And I, I would love to see it just, just that died down. Um, yeah. I mean, but looking at to on the wholesale side, looking at, looking at, central bank digital currencies for for cross-border, while most banks are going through their whole ISO 2022 migration right at the moment, by the way, is uh, I think 
I think much more interesting from a back office point of view than um, uh, in, in in terms of you know what's going on in the industry and, and making that a bit less expensive and and quicker and and cheaper. But no, I mean no, I I would I would uh, I would happily see the back of uh, the the crypto casino hysteria because I don't think I think it's it doesn't do the actual currency very very good favors I don't think it does the industry any any good the, the back office isn't sexy but it is it is kind of important the reason why they want these wholesale CBDCs is because they want to do decentralized finance and on-chain trading and you can't do that with bank accounts you need you you have to have an on-chain um, token that you can use and wholesale CBDC like they're doing with finality in the uk makes a lot of sense so i agree it's it's not maybe it's not but it's really important because if you t- if you take yeah. a few percent off of those costs it's a really big deal for the and similarly actually i agree with liz's point about you know going over to 222 you know opening up the possibility of some database value added services is also more important than cbdc in that context i was just in an argument actually i'm modeling myself on elon musk now because I'm spending all my time making stupid arguments on Twitter instead of doing anything useful. Um, I was just arguing with somebody on Twitter about this point because I, people who don't understand the remittance space think, oh, well, if we can cut the cost of of payments, you know, we'll help poor people. But but almost all of the cost of remittances has got nothing to do with payments. It's KYC, AML, CTF, PEP, last mile cash out. You know, the actual cross-border payment is really not that important. So I think where where I do agree with Henry about the impact of retail CBDC, I think the impact of retail CBDC is, is bigger than people think at the moment, but it's also further away because what's going on in places like Nigeria, so they're essentially, you know, most of what's going on in CBDC around the world at the moment are just sort of pilots and prototypes. They're, they're testing well, actually, they're testing the billing systems of management consultancies, as far as I can tell. I'm not sure if it's helpful beyond that. <laughs> Real CBDC is some way off. And that's because if you're the Fed, if you're the Bank of England, if you're the European Central Bank, establishing what the requirements for this CBDC are is really, really complicated. You have to get civil society. You have to have all of the stakeholders. Like, no one actually knows what a digital euro should do. So designing one right now doesn't really make any sense. And in order to get the engagement from civil society, remember, this is a huge thing. This is a once in a few generations. You know, we're going to replace cash with with, with digital cash. We have to get it right. It's really important. And without, without engaging all of the stakeholders and making sure that we understand exactly what it's supposed to do, how it's supposed to work, you know, the Bank of England are saying this is probably five years away. I, I agree with them. Uh, when it does come, Henry's right. I mean, the implications are going to be significant. I'd also say, actually, there's one area where some of the work I've been involved in has highlighted. So, so, so people talk about retail and wholesale CBDC, but there's another category of CBDC, which you might call industrial or, or machine CBDC. The German Banking Association response to the digital euro consultation was quite strong on this. One of the volume uses for CBDC isn't going to be anything to do with wallets and shops and people. It's going to be machine to machine. It's going to be these industrial supply chain reconfigurations. And um, and 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 that's going to be huge as well. So so I'm really, you know, I think CBDC is fantastic. It's it's really disruptive. I'm very but it's further away than you think because it's harder than you think to establish what it should do. 
the one thing I would say, Dave, where I slightly disagree with you, I think the what yeah. happened the last couple of months showed the sense of urgency. I mean, what we saw in November and December in previous uh, crypto bear markets was actually the flight to safety was happening towards Bitcoin. And we often saw Bitcoin's dominance in crypto markets go up to 70, 75%. What's been remarkable here in November and December is that Bitcoin's dominance stayed at 40%. A word uh, that, that uh, you know, flight to safety occurred was on US stable coins. I mean, literally, we saw about we're now even 140, 150 billion dollars of assets in stable coins. So, and this this money is going to stay in the crypto ecosystem, and people are using it. I would argue when you were saying earlier that actually it's all old men making money. I would argue actually there are now a lot of practical use cases of we're seeing people use stable coins. Not only by the way in countries like Turkey, Argentina, others, but actually in more holistically in other other places. Yeah, I didn't say people weren't using it. I said the the people that made money off it, that, you know, if you look at the demographic analysis of who bought in and at what time, it's very clear that the people that bought in late and at high values were people who were basically young and poor. So, but I'm not saying people aren't using stable coins, they don't have value. I might be nervous about classifying selling Bitcoin and buying Tether as a flight to safety. I think I think we may think of some other words for that in the future, but um, not terrible. Yeah, Let's sure see right. USDC has been a, where we coins. saw a trend. Uh, absolutely, we saw definitely a trend towards like uh, the regulated stable coins have seen a significant uh, increase uh, from from that perspective uh, as well. And I would say, you know, from the issue of that's old white people or old people making money. I would argue the same also with traditional finance, right? That with the, how we define accredited investors today, how we define professional investors, there is that automatic barrier uh, to access of wealth. Even, even with real estate, uh, where the average, let's say my average student at university is never going to be able to afford an apartment or be able to access a lot of these financial products, as we know, and no, crypto but, but, kind of gave them the opportunity there. Oh, no, but it no, didn't. That's, that, but it that's didn't. Great. That's the point. It was it was sold to them as an opportunity for to get yeah. financial security, but it never was. It was like it's like it's like telling me that putting you know putting five pounds on Phil Foden first to score in the game against France is a path to financial security. It's not. I think the lottery is one hundred and seven million right at the moment. I mean, that's that's. <laughs> I hate that when I see crypto people on stage going, "This is about underserved communities." No, it's not. No, it's no, it not. It's it about people. No, but what I mean, Liz and Dave, is basically, I think crypto did more for financial education, uh, awareness of what is money, what is central bank oh, I money. I couldn't disagree uh, with you uh, more. Then we've I done with all our uh, well. courses, books, and everything else. <laughs> and I think it's something we should give the credit to the crypto community on that perspective. Yes, uh, like anything else, is bad apples and good apples, but there's oh, been at least no. uh, awareness. Uh, Dave, Dave, take a, a, I'm oh, going to let Dave rebut okay, that, yes. and then I'm going to let Liz bring us home. So Dave, no, at least is about look, financial literacy inclusion. <laughs> First of all, financial literacy. Financial literacy. Well, if it's not crypto, UK, how do we fix it, Dave? The, well, the point is, there is no financial. Like saying that it improved financial literacy doesn't exist. No. So you've you've got to absolutely start from scratch in this. And what like the the people you know trying to explain to people that crypto is some sort of you know worthwhile investment or something like that's not you know, financial you know what, literacy. You know what? True, true financial literacy is actually boring. Talking about putting stuff in a in a you know high high value savings account that you don't touch. You know long term investment portfolios. Like putting in an independent savings account. Like those things are boring. That's financial yeah. literacy. Not also the problem is make, the problem you know. is no Liz is absolutely right but uh, the the point is Liz and I'm very curious you're closer to this than I am in the UK 
50% of people don't know what 50% means. So how are you going to educate them about APRs and savings against whatever? <laughs> no idea. The, the sooner bots take over and do this for us, the better, frankly. We need a we need well, chat GPT three, but for money. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, with that, a hundred percent of Jasons on this segment uh, appreciate all of your hot takes on the future of crypto and identity. Brett, back to you. Awesome. Well, uh, you know, um, we should have a quick break. So, um, Henry, Dave, Liz, if you guys can stick around, then we, we're going to call back on you at the end of the show for your uh, your big predictions for the year. But um, for now, um, stay tuned because we're going to come back from the break with Lita Glifford, Chris Skinner, Jim Maroos, and Mary uh, Wisniewski. Um, and we're going to be talking about uh, fintechs versus incumbents. Uh, we'll be right back after this break. You may already have payments embedded into your software platform, but do you have flexibility around how those payment experiences are created? What about control over your pricing or ability to use your own branding? Chances are you probably don't. Discover WorldPay for Platforms, a payments platform that puts you in control and puts your software customers first. This all-in-one payment facilitation platform offers more than just embedded payments. With WorldPay for Platforms, take advantage of a full set of solutions, including professional managed and advisory services to enhance your business. Make your software even better with a solution that easily integrates and adapts to your needs, helping you create experiences beyond payments. Discover the possibilities you can unleash with WorldPay for Platforms. Visit fisglobal.com slash worldpayplatforms to get started today. Welcome back to Breaking Banks. This is our uh, first show of 2023 with an all-star panel, including some of the biggest names in fintech and digital uh, banking and crypto, et cetera, uh, around the world, a truly global show. It's it's awesome. Joining us for this discussion for this second segment is uh, on this ex ex special extended mix of Breaking Banks, our... Uh, for friends again, um, Chris Skinner, the financer, um, Jim Maroos, Lita Glifitz, and Mary Wisniewski. How do I say it, Mary? There's a Polish way, and then there's the way I say it, which is Wisniewski. Wisniewski. Right. Yeah. Good. All right. Whiskey. I'll just call you Mary W. But um, okay. So, um, uh, you know, the, the, question, the question that I get asked. Every time I do a uh, a conference, um, you know, about fintechs is when are they going to be profitable, right? And my answer to that is the VCs don't care. So let's start off with, um, you know, it, it's been a it's it's been a tough year for fintechs, but still, let's keep in mind, twenty twenty two last year was still the second biggest year of funding we've seen in fintech. So, um, you know. Let's start off with you, Chris. Um, what do you think, um, you know, 2022 means for, you know, in terms of what happened uh, in the fintech space and the global economy overall? What does it mean for fintech in, in this year, in 2023? Well, I mean, everyone was asking me for quite the last few years, when's the fintech bust going to happen? And 
you could say it happened in 2022 because a lot of funding did dry up, but it dried up for the startup communities that didn't have the decent ideas. Um, there's quite a lot of copycat companies. There's quite a lot of companies with a flaky plan. Um, and when you mentioned when are they going to be profitable, uh, you know, one particular fintech uh, gave me a wry smile, which was when their founder said, profit's not part of our metrics. And I'm like, that's not going to be sustainable long term. So right now... Not a good answer. <laughs> no, yeah, but Amazon answer. wasn't profitable for 20 years and the VCs markets didn't care. Yeah, but at the same time, it's the drive of the vision and the metrics that support that vision and the belief in what's actually being delivered and whether it is sustainable. And there are some companies out there that are doing very well this year, in, even in light of what's happened in 2022, um, such as Stripe. Their valuation went from $95 billion to $75 billion between 2021 and 2022, compared to Klarna, um, the buy now, pay later company that lost over 70% of its value in 12 months. So uh, you know, th there are big questions around some of the models like BNPL, buy now, pay later, particularly as they're now being incorporated into big business like Apple, who's got their own buy now, pay later capabilities that they're developing. And I think the big thing really in 2022 is, is the product, the vision, the metrics, the uh, management team and the way in which they're developing sustainable and that's the question that everyone's been asking and there are some brilliant companies out there that are sustainable and there's probably about um half or more that will get wiped away and when you're looking at the big predictions for 2023 for example um a lot of the companies that are blowing up are going to be bought by banks because they want to steal their assets not the just their innovation yeah yeah not not just their intellectual property but their people their talent so they can run it into the ground. Also, that they can internalize it and make it 10 times more expensive. Yes, exactly. So, so Mary, um, you know, uh, I, you know, taking sort of the global perspective from Chris, you know, we've got uh, obviously what's happened in Europe and, and we've got um, players like Nubank, you know, and WeBank, you know, Nubank tops 70 million customers this year. It's, it, you know, across LATAM. That's, it's just insanely amazing growth, you know. Um, but, you know, uh, you're obviously more US focused. You do have a, a global outlook. But, um, you know, one of the things we've seen globally is all of the biggest fintechs tend to be outside of the US, you know, well, many of them. Um, you know, w w uh, is this like sort of the death knell of, of, fintech banks in the US or do you think they've got a chance players like oh. Chime and Faro and others yeah I think I think there's definitely a chance like well first I don't think things really die ever necessarily or <laughs> it's slow and painful and really drawn out but um I do think there's a chance I I um I would say, you know, just going to different conferences this year, it was kind of like very dark, um, the messaging, you know, and the fear from startups, especially neobanks, was real. And I'd even hear a couple mention like, you know, how they started trying to be appealing to really like up financial inclusion. But the reality is that's very hard and the money's not there. So they're like slightly pivoting. So I think, you know, that's like that's grim stuff. But um um, I don't think it's the death knell. I, I do think, you know, a bank could buy a new bank in the coming year. Um, and what, um, is that good? Is that bad? I guess, I guess we'll find out. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, who do you who do you rate as sort of the best fintech teams in the US right now? I know it's a tough question. You haven't. That's um, a tough question. Well, if we're doing neo banks, I'd still say like Chime still has, you know, the volume, but that's definitely taken quite a few hits um, over the over the recent more recent months. Absolutely. Now, Jim, um, let me throw this back to you. Um, you know. Obviously, we are seeing some stellar examples of some fintechs taking big market share, you know, examples like Nubank and WeBank and and uh, even Revolut still doing quite well in, in the European market. Um, and, you know, McKinsey did a report, you know, at the start of the fourth quarter on the gap that's opening up between the even the good banks, you know, and the fintechs, you know, we're seeing lower cost, cost of acquisition, better cash efficiency, you know, all of these sort of core metrics where, um, you know, digital pure plays, the fintechs are, you know, their operational efficiency is considerably better than the best, uh, the best big banks. So um, do you think that the pressure that's come on fintech means that these banks are going to take their foot off the pedal now? Or do you think this is a chance for them to close the gap? No, I, I, it, what's interesting, both in the bank and the fintech area, we're going to see consolidation. I think we're going to see massive consolidation. Scale still matters. You know, we there's something to be said for a community bank, but that's only if they have branches. You know, a community bank doesn't work in a digital world for whoever wants to be digital. And and I don't believe in a in a real world scenario you can support five community banks and three big banks in a single market. This goes with uh, the the neo banks and the uh, fintechs as well. Scale matters and profitability is going to matter. What's interesting though is even those organizations that seem to have scale, some of them aren't doing well from traditional metric standpoint. I love SoFi. I've loved SoFi for a while. I like their model. I like where they've gone, but the marketplace has not rewarded them for what they've done. They're continually worried about the 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 youth or the um, college pay down process. You know, Chris mentioned the buy now, pay later firms. That is, I believe, more an issue of how they evaluated credit in a good, a relatively good economy versus how it's backfiring in a bad economy. When you're looking at a time like now where the economic environment is really changing significantly, I think it becomes a bigger issue. I, I think you're going to see small banks, small fintechs fold or get acquired. And I think you're going to see some bigger organizations even struggle. We, we've seen that with Varl and others that, that you know, seem to be doing fairly well, and they're struggling. We saw the closing of what I considered at the time to be the, the potentially best fintech used in quote marks with uh, Goldman, with Marcus. And they folded. Uh, it, as they said, doing retail banking is tough. You know, and there may be, you know, when you're finding specific solutions, I think they tend to be acquired by the big, the best ones will be acquired by the biggest firms. Yeah, and I think a context in that one, Jim, is you said you love SoFi or Sophie, depending on how you want to say it. Uh, value is down over 70% this year as well. Uh, but you put that yeah. in context, look at the valuations of Amazon and you know Facebook and other big tech companies, they're all down. Exactly. So. Yeah, the whole technology marketplace is down. It's not just fintech. But, you know, Chris, it gets down to, we, we kind of forgot with the fintech because they're getting so much money pumped into it to stop looking at the fundamentals. It still gets down to the fundamentals. I mean, I, Ron Shovlin's on the next segment, but the reality is he'd be the first one to say, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's still banking. You know, we, we still got to, 
make sure that the, the quadrants work. And and when the economy's down, the money dries up. And you know, I it'll be interesting to see how much runway organizations have in 2023. I want I want Lita to to jump in here, but I will yeah. say the other thing is, you know, we never used to talk about market cap when we're talking about banks, very rarely. We're talking about asset size, NPL ratio, stuff like that. We never used to talk about customer acquisition cost. We never used to talk about digital scale. Um, We hear analysts constantly talking about those metrics now. So I think in the same way that you're saying that the fundamentals, I think there's new fundamentals that are emerging as well because the fintechs have created new metrics. But uh, Lita, Jump in here and, and give us some European perspective and, you know, what, what do you think in terms of what, what Jim and Chris have said? I, I must admit that it it all feels um, very real. And I, I agree with a lot of it. Obviously, the, uh, the, the color from the trenches is that we're still spending last year's money on the fintech um, side of things. Um, VCs are mostly sitting on their hands. And as, as was sort of hinted earlier, the the entities that are getting money now, because not everyone has stopped investing, are even more mature. The risk is lower. There are committed um, investments, but at slightly da- down valuation. And all of this is part of the game. Um, I do think that we are going to see a, a, a very different funding landscape in the first half of next year. And I'm not sure that's a bad thing necessarily, because you all said it. VCs didn't care the about The first half of this year, 2023, right? That's the one. And actually, okay. potentially beyond that, right? We d- we have no idea how long this will last. But, um, but I think the... The critical, um, the critical piece there is the tense, right? VCs didn't care about profitability, but I do believe that we're going to start seeing VCs caring about profitability and the metrics that we're asked to look at will start shifting um, for many reasons. And one is that um, I don't think we will see the pumping of cash that we have seen before come back anytime soon. There is also... Um, there's less dumb money around. There's more knowledge on both sides of the fence. In Europe in particular, the amount of talent we see crossing over from big institutions to startups and back again, particularly in product, is beginning to be substantial. Not necessarily the top dogs, but people with 10, 15 years of experience crossing over from uh, a startup to the um challenger arm of a bank like a metal or a or a chase uk um and you're seeing that cross-pollination and that that knowledge going back and forth i think we're also seeing some very very interesting moves obviously chase uk is telling a very very different story about challengers in in the uk uh jp morgan chase acquiring 50 percent of viva wallet in in europe is is changing the landscape and we're also seeing some younger companies in europe riding the moment in time and i think that's a very very good um thing to to add here there's a company that i i know well and i'm a big fan of called flagstone i am all about cash platforms. This is their moment. They're going gangbusters all of a sudden. Similarly, one bank capitalizing on the closures of branches are bringing a footprint together to solve a problem different differently. So I think we're going to see as the money begins to dry out, and it will for the best part of, of the year ahead of us, we will see the most creative companies no matter how early they are in their journey, going, you know what, there's a problem here and I can solve it. 
Yeah, you mentioned Viva Wallet there, Leda, and I just wanted to underscore that you've got to watch JP Morgan. You know, they, they've invested $800 million in that one deal to get half the share of the company. They brought Nutmeg. Their Chase Digital Bank in Britain is doing really, really well, far better than Marcus. So that's one to watch. This is this is the emergence of platform banking, right? What we're seeing Chase do with their investments, that's, that's clear. Mary, um, coming back to Lita's point on talent, the war on talent, you know, how how is that um, going to flag out? Are we going to see, um, are we going to see people, um, you know, hesitant to go into the startups? You know, now they're maturing and you don't have the stock options. And, um, you know, we haven't seen um, a lot of exits in the fintech space. We've seen a few, but, um, or, or, you know, but who wants to work for a bank? I mean, what do you think is going to happen? Well, you know, I've just been, I'm almost done with this story, but I've been working on a story that explores this very question. And like, honestly, I thought a lot of people would say, oh, hell no, I do not. <laughs> I can never see myself at a bank, but the flip side actually presented itself. And so I don't know if it's, it's definitely partly fear, but I think it's also just like, hey, let's really get into the thick of all these thorny problems and figure out how we can fix it. Of course, this is idealistic. And then, um, you know, try to work, work on that for other banks. But, you know, one, one very specific example was I was just speaking with um, Long Game, which Truist acquired, I think like six months ago or something like that um, in 2022, at least. And part of her, part of the co-founder's new role is leading their innovation arm. Um, and so they're rolling out Long Game Truist. I think that's the right branding in, um, in January. And honestly, she just seemed really thrilled to be able to do this through the bank. Again, it's early days, but um, I'll be really curious to follow that specific storyline. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think we just got a mixed bag, Brett. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, Jim, let's go, just go real ahead. quickly. You know, you look at the talent. And we're starting to see talent move a lot to more traditional firms or going independent altogether. You don't ever get the full story. But I thought it was interesting. It didn't get covered that much, but I'm getting emails from him quite a bit now. Patrick Sells at NIDIC. He was the face of NIDIC. There's no two ways about it. He was the one who was selling every bank out there around NIDIC. Now, there's some interesting components there. Are you saying that. he's looking for a job, Jim? Or? You know, he's, he's, he's gone independent. He's gone independent. He's no longer at NIDIC. Oh. He's now a consultant on innovation and all that. I just find the interesting. He's not by any means the only person that's moved. You had all of Marcus move over the last year. Um, a lot of them to Walmart. You know, that's and, – and Walmart hasn't really introduced anything yet. So it's going to be interesting to see the flow of talent, you know, the most face-front face talent that's been out there. Now, now yeah, Chris – um, I'm just going to lay sorry, stats, but, I mean, Starbucks is a bank. <laughs> you know, yeah. So maybe Walmart would become one too, or maybe it already is. Sorry, Brett, you were going to say. No, I was going to ask you, I mean, coming back to what Lita was talking about with Chase UK, I mean, um, you know, if if we look at their entrance it, it, into the, the UK market, it, it does look impressive on the surface of it. Um, I don't know where their traction is at in terms of number of customers. You may have an update on that. But at the same time, They've invested 750 million in deploying Chase UK. Whereas if you look at what Revolut, Monzo, Starling, you know, the, the other, um, you know, fintechs did, 
they were able to accomplish the same thing for under 40 or 50 million bucks, right? Now, um, so there there is a cost of big banks doing this in terms of their efficiency, but um, where does where do we, you know, at the end of 2023, end of this year, where do you think Chase UK is going to be at? Well, I mean, Chase at the end of 2022 in September reached over a million customers in under 12 months. Now, part of the reason why that's happened is they're bribing them. They're offering great right, interest rate. Right. Their cost of acquisition is very high comparative to, say, Revolut, right? Yeah, but I think um, you know Jamie Dimon, Down, and his team are saying it's worth the bet, it's worth the risk. Um, Marcus kind of did the same, but the difference in approach is interesting in that Marcus was doing everything within Goldman Build, whereas Chase is doing it, as I mentioned, by some acquisitions as well as organic growth and so uh near the viva wallets um the nutmeg wealth management aspects robo advisors the whole way in which they're approaching the market is far more as you mentioned platform based and i think it reflects um an understanding of retailing of finance which Goldman didn't have and Goldman as we know is struggling with the markets offering and a lot of their people have left um Having said that, you know, we've got Revolut, we've got Monzo, Starling and others. And I just find it interesting, and I always come back to the same page, which is if you have someone who understands finance in the leadership team and has been around the block, like an Ann Bowden or Jamie Dimon, you're yeah. far more likely to be successful than if you've got no experience and no knowledge or if you're purely a technology visionary. Props to Anne. She's done, she's done well, Lita. Uh, agreed. So uh, it's an interesting market because the UK was the busiest one with Monzo, Starling, Revolut all vying for attention. Um, they're going in slightly different directions. Anne is doubling down and um, she's doing some very, very interesting work, both uh, monetizing the infrastructure she's built for herself, but also staying the course. And I, I must admit that looking at and it. profitable, by the way. You can say to every detractor, she said she was going to do it. She has not been deterred. And you could actually say that the biggest challenge with Revolut is that either succumbing to VC pressures or going with the hype, they've tried so many different things. Uh, the reality is it's the crypto angle that has been the most profitable. There is a way, there is a world where they double down on that. They're doing some very, very interesting work playing with new geographies and treating those geographies as startups and shutting them down if they don't work. Um, the one that I must admit I'm seeing falling a little bit behind uh, is Monzo. It was I, the I, golden I child in so many ways, and it has fallen behind a little bit. I can make a comment here, but I'll be interested in your view, Ledo, in that um, the FCA hasn't given Revolut a banking license. Why? I I do well. We we don't have an official view, but I would be very shocked if their crypto activity didn't have a lot to do with it. But you know, I I, I mean, part of this also is the fact that, and Jim, I'll get your comment on this. One of the reasons, you know, Revolut has 25 million customers plus, and, you know, as we say, um, uh, Starling's done very well, we, but we've had a bunch of activity in the UK that really did, I mean, define what a challenger bank looks like, you know, for, for much of the world. Uh, and part of that was the fact that the FCA was quite progressive as a regulator. Um, you know, their tech sprints, um, they're, you know, very early out of the gate with fintech regulation. The US still doesn't have a fintech charter. 
And um, I would argue that that it has been a huge disadvantage to the US market and is part of the reason why the US is slipping further and further behind the rest of the world in terms of you know, financial services innovation. What do you think, Jim? Well, it's interesting. If you, they don't have a fintech charter and they're not, they're not approving any, uh, they're approving very few banking expansions. So on both sides of the equation, not just the fintech charters, but the banking charters and and even allowing acquisitions, I don't I don't know what the regulators are thinking right now except protectionism. Um, Brett, you and I both talked to a previous two two ago previous administration now, and they were saying they weren't going to continue to support those who can't support themselves. Everything I'm seeing from the regulators seems to be that they're think they're listening to the trade groups too much. Yeah, but I mean, if I want to start a fintech bank in the UK, I need a million dollars of capital adequacy. In the US, it's 50 million. That's a very, very big difference, you know, to go to a VC and ask for that, those sort of money, right? Mary, Mary, I'm, I'm going to flip to you too, because you're out there. Well, oh, Jim's taking you know, what, what the challenge I'm, I'm feeling is that in the US, you know, it's very hard for fintech to survive. Neobanks is really, as we've already seen, it's hard to be another bank when you got 6,000 or whatever the number is now left. I mean, do you see a consolidation being a bigger, a bigger deal? You know, Uh, and I don't mean a consolidation much as purchasing them. Yeah, I do. I think, um, I mean, but there's a limit to that because like how much, like you need enough money. And I think I was just talking to someone who thought um, like, no, there would be no one in the U.S. who could afford Chime, and they meant also Chase there. Um, so I think the, you know there's barriers here, but I do think you know these companies will be bought um, more. Um, certainly not a lot of them, but a few more of them. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It's just it's going to be a curious shakeout in the coming months and probably years. Sure. I find it interesting that none of you have talked about NewBank or WeBank, and yet. They're phenomenally successful. I mean, you know, where do you think Newbank's New going to go, Chris? You've had a bit of experience with them. And Lita, you can jump in too. Well, I mean, it's still my favorite quote, which is, if banks are Darth Vader, then credit cards are the Death Star, which is what the founders of Newbank said when they launched in 2017. Love it. And, you know, I'm saying they launched in 2017. You just said they've got over 70 million customers. That's in five years. That's and right. the reason being is that credit cards were the soft underbelly of the Brazilian market, which they attacked because um, they were very expensive, uh, something like $20 a month, I think, for the fees on cards typically to actually just have a card. And, and they brought that down to $5. Um, and that really created their model that then was interesting because the Brazilian regulators were saying we're not going to allow fintech and new banks to come into the Brazilian markets. But then they saw the success of what they did with the with the card offer and they gave them a banking license. And now they've gone into Mexico and Colombia and they're moving into other markets, Argentina, across the South Americas and, and maybe eventually the world. And I think this is part of the point that um, is interesting for me. And I know that Leda's got a view on this as well, is that the regulators are learning on on, on the job. You know, that they're, they're learning fast too, and they're changing fast too. And then, you know, with the, most of the regulators that I've met over the years in the first half of the last decade were very, very averse to the risks of anything to do with new entrants coming into their markets. Yet now they're actually actively supporting a lot of competition yeah. and opening doors to them. And I think that's been a big turnaround. And this year, you know, 2023 onwards, I think we'll see a lot more of that as well. Well, remember that regulators, especially in the US, 
I consider to be the oldest bankers. So basically, you know, you were they all worked in banks at some previous point. So they're, they're the oldest, most stodgy bankers. Elsewhere in the world, these are usually not bankers. These are people that are trying to make you know inclusion more of a big issue. New Bank is benefiting because they're going to all the countries where the people did not trust banks. So basically they became a provider of services. Not well, there's also a bit of the competitive, regulatory competitive angle where regulators, you know, um, in those markets saw what Brazil was doing and then they had to respond and and New Bank gave them a chance for that. So Lita, what what do you think about all of this in terms of um, where we're going this year? I think that what we have seen in in Europe and in select regulatory clusters like uh, Singapore or um, Australia is that the regulators who entered the dance first, as as you pointed out, Brett, the ones that were willing to open the doors to to higher degrees of competition from fintech, have been on an accelerated learning curve that just cannot be matched without that interaction with the fintech world. We're seeing that they're leading lights in open finance and in portability of those rules. We're seeing that they're thinking about um, technology much more thoughtfully. You're seeing material suppliers being part of the conversation with regulators in a way that they're not in the less mature environments because the regulators don't understand the technology in as big a detail. You're seeing uh, roundtable discussions around scalability and stability on the cloud being led by the regulator who are on a constant learning curve with different players around the room. I think it's not an overstatement to say that a lot of the innovation we're seeing at a market level and the business models that are succeeding in places like Singapore, Australia, and the European economic area are to a very large extent driven by a regulator who's really enjoying their learning curve. And the regulators that are not on that learning curve cannot actually catch up other than through sort of cross-pollination regulator to regulator. But until you open the room up to the people who are living and breathing this and doing it every day, the regulator remains, as Jim says, a little more stodgy. U.S. Fed, I hope you're listening. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, you, you look, we got to go to break, that, Jim. Right? we, we got to go to break. Adrian in New York, um, we even have state differences. You know, she's, yeah. she's much more progressive than any of her peers. Yeah, and but she's finding it tough in in the environment with yeah. But anyway, so um, just before we get a break, break, um, Chris and Mary, what what are, what are you guys? You guys have launched something new for for twenty twenty three. Well, actually, you launched it last year. But what, what's what's happening? Uh, it's just moving along. We've got a weekly quiz show, which is just humorous. It's not meant to be serious like your show, Brett. Um, it's it's called FinTech Uncut, F-U for short. I'm the wise guy and Mary's the judge. We wanted to call her the dominator, but for some reason, Mary, you didn't like that. We can always <laughs> update, upgrade. <laughs> your, power, your power level go way up, though, but that's just something different. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I'm uh, already afraid great. of this year then. <laughs> so ch- check it out. Um, the FinTech quiz show um, with, with Chris and Mary. All right. We're going to take a quick break after the break. JP is going to bring us home with Ron Shevlin, Paolo Cerrone, um, and uh, maybe uh, a couple of, a couple of you guys, if you can stick around, we'll, we'll join into that conversation as well. You're uh, listening to Breaking Banks. This first show of the year, the big 2023 predictions. We'll be right back after this break. Well, welcome back. Uh, well, a lot of what we've heard so far in our discussion 
include some of the structural differences between mature and developing markets. When we look forward and we want to make forecasts, we have to look at headwinds, we have to look at tailwinds, and we need to look at catalysts. What are the things that will actually drive change as we look forward into this new year? So, Ron, I'm curious from your perspective, as you look out there, what are the innovations that are going to drive the most change? Thanks, JP. I think um, as I kind of look at it, I, I think of it kind of very, in a very bifurcated way. One, looking at it from a strategy perspective and what will drive some of the technology changes. And then the other view being sort of what are the, the fundamental technologies that banks will make better use of. So I think on the first um view. I think that especially in the U.S., and I do think that this is somewhat uh, global in nature, but I'm, I have to admit to being very U.S.-centric on this, is um, a fundamental dichotomy between the embedded finance and embedded fintech strategies. Uh, there are a lot of talk this year about embedded finance, you know, providing financial services to fintechs and other non-financial firms. Uh, but I think for all the hype, we're only looking at a relatively small number of banks who are going to be able to do that. And the alternative being uh, what I would think of as an embedded fintech strategy, embedding not uh, embedding products and services from third parties, in particular fintechs, into their product offerings and strategies. So that is going to require a lot more emphasis on the part of banks and credit unions. Um, more, I guess you could call it open banking, although I kind of hate that term, but a real focus on integration, um, maybe not development of APIs, but assessment of APIs, third-party APIs, open APIs, uh, to better integrate those things. Uh, and then the second piece, the second view in terms of the technology, um, and I'm building on some uh, some recent Twitter conversations that uh, I know Brett was involved with around chat, uh, as I think we're going to really see for the remainder of 2023, a huge emphasis on the part of a lot of mid-sized banks and credit unions on um, embedding AI, conversational AI technologies and tools. Um, I'm hesitant to use the word chat because I think of that as sort of the, the low end of the scale. And for the time being, AI, intelligent right. digital assistance is being sort of the higher end of that. But uh, I do think there's a, you know, a, 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 a journey towards the intelligent digital assistant that's is a lot more than just, you know, providing advice to, to clients. I think it's about operational improvement, efficiency, uh, cost reduction, and internal operational stuff. So I think that's kind of at a high level, kind of what I'm seeing for 2023, the embedded fintech movement and the, uh, the, the, the chatbot journey. All right, Paolo, what about from your perspective? Well, I can summarize, uh, first of all, the concept with a simple sentence, uh, macro is back and it's not going to be the solution. And the macro is back. Expectation is uh, part of the solution, but it adds to systemic risks. Now, let's get back a little bit in time into 2019. I like to make uh, one of the most favorite sports of all, uh, blame the central bankers. Um, but this time I do it for good. Uh, um, two weeks before Mario Draghi left office at the European Central Bank, he was asked by a journalist if uh, negative interest rates, let's say, uh, non-conventional monetary policies that uh, would create uh, the next financial crisis. And what Mario Draghi said uh, was that, uh, of course, banks love positive interest rates, right? Because they can get more net interest margins. But he said uh, the real problem is that uh, the uh, business model of banks uh, 
needs to be adjusted to the digitalization of financial services to move out of the conundrum. So he said that don't wait for different macroeconomic conditions. The problem is more foundational. And when central bankers talk, we need to pay attention to all worlds. So he didn't say digitize the existing business models. He said that they need to adjust the business models to the digitalization of financial services. Now, what is happening now is that macro is back. So interest rates are going up, but maybe for the wrong reason, not because there is, uh, if you like, innovative of the economy, but because uh, inflation that was not expected uh, uh, basically took center stage. And what can happen in this situation is that instead of leading to an asset expansion, there might be a recession. Now, it is true that if you raise the interest rates, you might price the credit relationship a bit more. But what happens through the economic cycle? You may get into more troubles because the price for risk will go up together with the spread and banks might not afford that. So it says that quite a few bankers are like, okay, maybe next year is better because we have a bit more margins. But I don't think this will be the solution because it's not conforming to the previous economic environment, the one that we were used to live into before the global financial crisis. As a matter of fact, I just made a lot of analysis on financial performance, which will be part of my next global outlook for banking and financial markets 2023 to be published by IBM in mid-January. And what you see there clearly is, if you look at the net interest margin of the top banks across all geographies, from 2007, the years preceding the crisis, and now you see that there's been going down. It's almost half compared to 15 years ago. Now, if you look at the return on equity, the same from 2007 to 2022-23 is basically halving everywhere in the world. But at the same time, the cost income ratio remained pretty sticky, very high. In some places, like in core Europe, even went up from 2007 to 2022. So now, if you think about the impact of inflation, there will be higher cost for banks. There will be higher cost for pricing the risk because of potential new defaults. That means that the return on equity will be always challenged and the cost might even go up. Instead well, of- and, and, and I think it, it's even more than that too, because the um, cost of capital in general is going up and most of them aren't really earning a, a return on capital uh, ron when you look across the traditional financial services industry as paulo says macro is back um is, is that going to be a headwind or a tailwind this year i don't know that's a good question <laughs> <laughs> um I, I don't know that the bankers kind of look at it that way. You know, I, I think there's two ways they kind of look at it. One is looking at, you know, what are the immediate uh, economic considerations? And for that, I definitely think there's a, a headwind. No, no question about it from an economic perspective, especially in the U.S. Um, but from a more broader trends perspective, the technological change, I, I think those are tailwinds. That are, are are pushing them in uh, towards you know greater innovation. So I think there's there's both, uh, and I'm not sure about the the macro concept of it. But um, sorry about that, Paolo. You're you're just no, too smart for me. Look, <laughs> the, the future is open, so nobody knows. But the point is that this will not be a relief for bankers, even though they might hope for that. So still, they need to double down in innovation because the outlook is very complex for them. And that leads us into the second problem, uh, the systemic risk. Now, in the past, uh, systemic crises were primarily financial crises. Think about opacity around subprime uh, issues or uh, the 
fancy valuations uh, of companies in the dot-com era. But this time around, the next systemic crisis may be operational. And when it is operational, it's about technology. And the reason is because uh, the world and also banking became more open and the cloud innovation not done right may expose uh, new weaknesses and vulnerabilities. So it's very important for banks to reflect that even on the basics of innovation inside their systems, because cyber resilience is a must that cannot be postponed as the next crisis could be different from the one of the past. Yeah, uh, Lita, I think you have some thoughts on this. How do you react to what uh, Paolo's talking about systemic risk? I, I agree. It, it, it scares me a little bit. And Paolo, you, you deliver it with so much warmth, but it's such a scary outlook of what's ahead of us. And I agree with you. Uh, fully. The one thing that gives me a little bit of optimism is that the innovation you rightly point out is needed more than ever, is resting on tools and technologies that we've been proving out for the last 10, 15 years. And particularly on the banking side of the world, we've made our lives more difficult than they needed to be by proving and proving and proving and testing, sometimes to buy ourselves time. But 10, 15 years in, There is no technology that is in the toolkit of either the scaling fintechs or the more ambitious banks right now that is new. So at least that component allows for a bit of speeding up. Now, do we have the courage to do what we know is needed? I think the big piece that's missing in everything we've talked about is that the biggest challenge for the established institutions globally has been a a, a lack of courage. There is a a moment right now with everything that's going on and the outlook for the year ahead being difficult, where actually the big institutions could go, my scale, my size, and my coffers are the biggest strength I have compared to all the others. The technology is tested and ready for me to use. Now is my time. If you have the right leadership in some big organizations, this is the absolute moment to shine. Whether we see that by the way, technology is about people because it's about how you use it, right? So it's changing the operating model around technology that, that would deliver the difference. And that's absolutely difficult to, to achieve, but it's fundamental. You know, well, we just we just um finished a study on innovation, and I get the feeling that while the priorities of what they say they want to innovate around, customer experience, all this, I believe now that it's much less of a a typical, I want to say that because it makes me feel good, than actually investing in it. I, I see a, I'm seeing a whole lot more investment in, in data, analytics, and AI than we said before. People are saying it, but now they're actually doing it. I think we're also seeing that it's been proven out to the latest point about um, proving out the, the metrics. I think we're finding that organizations are starting to feel pain around not providing the great experience slash engagement. Therefore, there's more innovation being done in that area, where in the past, it was more talking to talk as opposed to walking to walk. But right now, organizations are seeing that, you know, Ron's research shows these big organizations be disintermediated without them even knowing it. They haven't lost the accounts. They may even have the same level of balances, but these people are, are expanding the number of organizations they use. And that is causing innovation to happen to get that business back. I, I see more momentum around innovation, despite the fact that, you know, banks are still, you know, to Powell's point, still Powell's point, they're still making money. I think the issue is still out there, though. But I think, you know, innovation, to Ron's, Ron's point, reference to everybody else's point, is that the financials would say there's there's a headwind, in, a, a headwind because you have less money to spend. 
But on the other hand, you have a tailwind because efficiencies and effectiveness and engagement are more important than ever. But but I think that points out a huge dichotomy, and and Lita kind of got at this, and Ron and and Paolo both kind of spoke to this about, you know, are we going to just uh, make incremental change, or are we going to do something disruptive? And what I fear the most, maybe this gets into my my hot take for our, our lightning round, but it's that when we're in times of crisis, you fall back on what you know, the habits that you have, or the training that you've been through, and I think most of the traditional players are going to double down on um, you know, staying in the banking business, gathering deposits, marking them up and making loans and trying to do that a little bit more efficiently. So when we talk about things like conversational AI and, and even uh, you know, all the way back to uh, embedded finance and blockchain and all of that. Um, so, so Ron, back to you. Do, do you think, are we going to see more incremental or more disruptive innovation this year? Incremental. I'll put as much money I've gotten my wallet down on that one for sure. I, and I think yeah. to your point, JP, I think to a large extent, a lot of the, the traditional banks, credit unions, and even you know fintech providers in the space have looked at sort of the, down, the fintech downturn of 2022 as confirmation that they were right in sort of staying the course with banking traditionally. Um, but, you know, going back to the earlier part of the, the, the show, the discussion around blockchain and DeFi, uh, you know, this is where I might disagree a little bit with Lita that it's all proven technology. Um, David Solomon from Goldman Sachs can talk about transparency all he wants. I think the reality is, is that Goldman Sachs makes its money because it's not transparent. And so this is a you, know, you can you can talk all he wants about it. Reality is is that those firms make a lot of money by not being transparent. So there's a longer term trend towards the disruption. But for 2023, JP, I think this a lot of the focus will be on incremental, and I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. Well, in the end, the financial market transparency unveils uh, the conflict of interest uh, in the institutional play, not only against other institutions, but against the clients. Uh, and I think transparency is the only element that builds trust. Now, you can play around with that uh, the way you want, but in the end, uh, they will don't you. Uh, think about sustainability. Only radical transparency will be able to divide uh, the green from the greenwashing, so it's absolutely needed. And it's about using data and also recognizing the limit of data because data is not infinite, right? It's not just powerful. There is a balancing act that is required by all parties uh, in the game of finance uh, to respect the value for customers. So interesting take there. Uh, transparency will separate green from the greenwashing, and there's certainly been plenty of that going around. Well, Brett, why don't we uh, wrap this up with our lightning round? I'll, I'll uh, turn yeah. it back over to you, and we'll we'll all provide our kind of final hot yes. takes here. I'm going to ask you too, to JP, to to give your uh, your your uh, prediction as well. I'm going to kick it off, um, and it's not really a fintech prediction. But I think 2023 is going to be the year we hear of, um, you know, particularly with GPT-4, the next iteration, I think we're going to hear a lot about um, conversational AI um, uh, basically passing the Turing test. So that's my big prediction for, for the year. Chris Skinner, um, I'll, I'll ask you to jump in here. What's your big prediction for 23? 
I think it's going to be a year that we talk a lot more about hi-fi, as I call it, which is hybrid finance. I don't think it can be truly decentralized. I don't think it can be truly centralized. I think you need a hybrid model between the two. And as demonstrated by FTX and Sam Bankman Fried, um, or the Harry Plotter, as he's called by the New York Post, um, you know, it's going to be a case that you have to have a centralized oversight in a decentralized system. Hi-fi. Very cool. All right, Dave from Woking, what's your big, big take? Uh, my big take, I think the metaverse is going to be bigger than people think. I, a lot of the focus on the metaverse is about the sort of virtual world side of it. And like we're all going to be in Call of Duty, but selling each other insurance. Um, but I, I think that's not really where we're going. The metaverse is a more secure place than the, it's being built on more secure technology. So because it's more secure than the internet, the transaction costs will be lower than the internet. So I think you'll see more business in the metaverse than you think, because it, it isn't all about headsets and, you know, so on. Is the metaverse meta, or is it something else? Well, look, I, you know, the focus is on the kind of visual, but there's there's other, you know, the point about the metaverse is it's it's a sort of shared virtual world. That could be audio. I mean, there's I've read some interesting stuff about, you know, people wandering around all day with their AirPods in, becoming part of a sort of shared space. There is kind of visual stuff and headphones and things, but there, you have to remember, remember that the, the very first virtual world, the multi-user dungeon uh, back in the 70s, um, was were people were utterly addicted to it. And that wasn't even, that was just text. You know, yeah. you wake up in a dark room and just, all this Just sort of wait till stuff. Apple launches their glass, glasses later this month. You know, yeah. we're, we're waiting so I, to I, hear I, if that's going to happen. That's going I to think be too much the emphasis is, you're right. I, th I think too much of the emphasis has been on the sort of visuals and, you know, we're all going to be in Fortnite and not enough emphasis has been on the fact that there's a there's a more secure infrastructure coming into place here that's built on cryptography, that's built on encryption, that's built on digital signatures and so on, a more secure version of the internet for, for business. Including commerce, right? Including so, commerce, yeah. Yeah, Henry? um what's your big prediction for the year there you go talking about predictions i just released them over the holidays my top the crypto predictions for the year i would say one that i haven't mentioned today that i'm really keeping a big eye is the gaming space uh right now the rise of despite everything happening in crypto markets web3 is continuing in full force and let's not forget that games like league of legends or world of warcraft are already the biggest metaverse out there with 3.5 billion gamers globally and this is an audience that is really owned used to owning digital skins uh having digital assets and is very open to crypto uh previously we used to look at crypto as being this bridge between TradFi to the future finance but i think we may see a shift uh from that being happening towards gaming so that's definitely one thing i'm watching and maybe I, some of the wild one i'm looking at i wouldn't be surprised if the wild prediction is if we see actually some of the big traditional banks use this as an opportunity to, to come in in crypto and try to actually get captured this market share yeah. another wild card that i'm watching is the big tech platforms twitter could be a very good example crypto twitter crypto happens on twitter crypto twitter doesn't twitter. have much to lose right now uh, we already have payments and nft uh profile pics maybe what we were mentioning before digital identity and web3 maybe it could be twitter that's <coughs> another wild card back to you brett all right well um dave just very quickly virtual worlds 10 seconds he said league of legends the league of legends world championship had five million viewers it was big but 
not a patch, in my opinion, on the XL World Championship, which is where we'll all be. The XL World Championship was was <clears> live <throat> on ESPN3. That's our future, people. The XL yeah. World Championship. It's an yeah, eSports. I play Roblox with my kids every weekend. So, yeah. All right, Jim, you're up. Jim, what's your prediction for 23? You know, I'm, I'm hoping it's 2023, but it might be shortly thereafter. Very much like uh, was said earlier, I see the integration of healthcare and finance. Or I think, you know, with our digital trackers, everybody's got a digital, almost everybody's got a digital tracker out there. The ability to reward people in a financial world for their health care and their their health uh, digital in, uh, working. So I think we're starting to see a little bit of that. But if you look at the metaverse, that's a perfect environment to bring those two, two universes together. Awesome. JP, you're up. Well, uh, I think we're entering an era of re-regulation. A couple of people talked about that. You know, save for um, maybe five years coming out of the global financial crisis, we've been in a 30-year trend of deregulation. I, I think that really starts to go the other way now. And then that leads into what Lita was talking about, which is the, the big will get bigger and stronger. And um, those that are kind of doubling down on just uh, digitizing their existing processes are at real risk of um, much more rapid consolidation than what we've seen in the past. And it's going to take those with uh, courage to really break out of that mold. Awesome. All right. So, Lita, you're up. I, I totally agree with that. I think it's going to be a, an exciting year ahead, but exciting for um potentially mundane reasons. I think we're going to see uh, focus on governance and re-regulation. Totally agree with JP. I think, as we said, it's going to be a year of two halves. We will see funding slow down, which means that some companies will have hard times. Financial discipline will be absolutely of the essence. That means that people will focus on the right metrics. People will focus on predict uh, predictability of their finances, profitability. Moment in time and the maturity of a business will have a lot to do with whether people survive or need to be bought up. But we will see that financial discipline, which will hopefully bring a lot of focus. So as we're coming to this time, um, Next year, we might be seeing that energy coming back up. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Liz, you're up. <laughs> I, I absolutely hate predictions because sometimes it's it's a battle between what you want to so happen. So call it a forecast instead. <laughs> and what you know what you think will happen, what you want to happen. Um, I, I, I very much agree with Ron about this idea about incremental innovation. I think that's what's suited to financial services. But I would like to see an absolute death of this obsession with being a super app and having everything everything that you do i i know you don't agree with me but um but no, I, I do I kinda, agree with you <laughs> but i mean i think what we're seeing it's kind of like you know what what works in belgium doesn't work in baltimore i mean i think what we're seeing everyone points to china and how huge a country that is and they had a lot of political unrest recently and the you know and i don't want to be like a conspiracy theorist but Th those apps allowed people to be tracked. And that's something I think needs to be it also examined better. To respond, right? Yeah. But I mean, I don't, I don't want one company to have everything about me. <laughs> and I, I don't want own. anyone. And the whole idea of a super app the, uh, is just about that control of the customer. And it, it tech, tech is never the first step. It's always the problem. And then, whatever easiest tool you can find to fix it so no no i want i want to see no one say we want to be a super app for 2023 that's what Fair i would enough. like all right mary 
All right. Yeah. So I've been zoomed in on buy now, pay later. You know, it's so popular here, getting more popular and the economy is getting, you know, dicier and dicier. And so I think it's going to give the rise to other products that are needed to be built in terms of money management of ways to help the problem that this is now creating for people who are struggling with their everyday money. So that's one thing. And the other thing is a throwback to Finnovate early days that that was created uh, around another financial crisis. And so I think we could see a really interesting live event pop up here in the next 12 months. Absolutely. All right. So who's left? I guess I go next. Paolo, you're up. Great. I learned a couple of things, first of all, in the show today. First of all, that digital might be the new friction and Liz might be right. And the second is that the Microsoft Excel is here to stay. Sorry for the blockchain guys. It's also reassuring. But if I can put the spotlight on- That's uh, how FTX was run, right? Yeah. So. The spotlight on the biggest innovation of all that was not mentioned in the show today. We are in the quantum decade. And we saw this year the quantum capabilities grow extremely fast as the expectation was set a few years ago. Now, this year we saw many banks investing in quantum and I see many more lining up next year. And they're investing in quantum research. That means it's incremental. It's not going to change anything overnight. It's like uh, if you think about cars uh, and airplanes, uh, you use the car to go somewhere, but you use the plane to go somewhere else or even further. And sometimes you need to mix and match the two. So banks are now learning what they could potentially do with quantum computing, uh, investing in very interesting uh, uh, and applied research cases. So we'll hear more and more about that in the year to come. Perfect. Ron, bring us home. So my prediction's a bit mundane, but I predict that the U.S. Supreme Court will uphold the constitutionality of the CFPB with Roberts and either Kavanaugh or Coney Barrett siding with the liberals on this one. Another blow to the to the banks who absolutely detest the CFPB. That's why it should stay, right? Anyway. Well, it's been a phenomenal show. I'm, I'm sad. It's coming to an end. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we've got, you know, it's an extended mix. So, you know, we do have to wrap it up. Let me thank everyone that's been on the show, um, you know, um, uh, in, in alphabetical order, uh, Chris, um, Chris Skinner, Dave uh, Birch, Liz Lumley, Henry Aslani, and Jim Maroos, JP Nichols, Lita Glifitz, uh, I got Liz, Mary Wisniewski, sorry. Um, Paolo Cerrone, uh, Ron Shevlin, and of course my co-hosts uh, JP Nichols and uh, um, Jason Hendricks. Um, I will say um, that the couple of quick shout-outs. Um, don't forget to uh, check out uh, was it FinTech Unplugged. Is that what you call it, Chris? Mary. FinTech Uncut. FinTech Uncut. Yeah, sorry. Um, and uh, Lita, Lita, you've got your, your new book out in February. What's it called? It's called Bankers Like Us. And it will be available from the beginning of February. And then hopefully we'll get Branch Today gone tomorrow out as well, um, which we're collaborating on with Jim and, and Richard Turin. And um, uh, and Chris, you've got a new book coming out too, or just released, right? Yeah, it's the fifth in my series of Captain Cake and the Candy Crew to sweetly go where no sweet has been before. There you go. And so, you know, you may not know, but uh, Chris, apart from being a world-class fintech and banking author, is also a, uh, a celebrated author of children's, children's literature. So uh, multi, multi-talented. Um, but a it's phenomenal cast. Audience. 
(laughs) Phenomenal cast today. I thank you all for an incredible show. I thank you all for being wonderful friends. And this has been a, a, you know, a 10 year journey we've already been on. This is the 10th year of Breaking Banks. And so as the first show of our 10th year, um, this is only fitting to have such an awesome collection of amazing commentators and thought leaders in the space. I thank you all for joining us. That's it for Breaking Banks this week. We will, of course, be back next week with more Breaking Banks. Until then, we'll see you in the future. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Lisbeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media. Or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast, and in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.